0: Philippians chapter 1, and this morning we will be looking at verses 27 through verse 30. So Philippians chapter 1, begin at verse 27, listen now to the reading of God's holy word. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent... I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation, and that from God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. I seek the Lord's blessing on this His holy word. O oh, gracious God, in heaven, we rejoice and give thanks to you for for your word. It is our only infallible rule for faith and life. We thank you for this passage that we come to this morning and We do pray for Your Spirit to lead us and guide us and to give us understanding and insight as Your Word goes forth in the power of the Spirit. We do pray that it would find within each of our hearts that rich, fertile soil that bears great and abundant fruit for Your glory. We ask now for Your blessing upon Your Word. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. How do we live as saints in Christ Jesus in the 21st century. That's been the key theme that we've sought to address in our, uh, so far in our study of Paul's letter to the Philippians. And as we come to this particular passage this morning, often viewed as the theme verses of the letter, we see that Paul addresses this, uh, this theme head on <coughs> as he challenges the Philippian believers and he challenges us through the Spirit to live our lives first and foremost as citizens of the gospel. We remember that previously Paul has expressed his great love and and his concern for the Philippian believers and how, even though he himself is in prison and, and facing an uncertain future, he remains steadfast in the mission and the purpose which Christ has called him to. He rejoices greatly that he has so persevered that even his imprisonment hasn't prevented the gospel from going forth. And now, now, as he struggles with the dilemma, as we considered last time, between what is best for him and what is most necessary for the Philippians, Paul reminds the Philippian believers of who they are and of what they've been called to do. And of the challenges that they'll surely face as citizens of the gospel, and he begins this in verse twenty-seven, saying, "Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear it. Uh, I may hear of your affairs." Basically, Paul is saying, regardless of what happens to me. Right? Whether or not I, I'm able to come or or not, or, or uh, whether I'm able to see you again or not. He's challenging them. Conduct yourselves, or literally live as citizens, in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. Remember that Philippi was a city established as a Roman colony. First it was a, a Greek city, and then the Romans uh, came in and established it as a colony. And, and especially the retired military personnel were the ones who would come and, and who had settled in this particular city. And that these were proud Roman citizens. And Paul is here kind of playing on that uh, on that civic pride, and yet instead of just telling the Philippians, be good exemplary Roman citizens, he's reminding them of another citizen, citizenship that they possess. A citizenship as members and partakers of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And later in chapter 3, Paul will refer to this same citizenship, saying, for our citizenship is in heaven. Well, how did they come to obtain such a heavenly citizenship? Usually, people are born into citizenship, right? If they're they're born on the soil of a particular nation, or if both of their parents uh, are citizens of a particular nation, then that's how they get their citizenship. It just comes automatically. Now, certainly, most of us would be citizens of the U.S. this way. We were born here, and our parents were born here, and our citizenship comes, again, automatically as a result. But if you weren't born a citizen of this country, well, then you can become one. Even if you weren't one, you can still become one by taking tests and swearing allegiance to the Constitution and certainly paying a fee. Many immigrants during the 19th and early uh, 20th century became citizens this very way, and certainly it still is how people become citizens today. But this isn't how we become citizens of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're not naturally born into the gospel kingdom, nor does it come to us through the status of our parents, And we certainly can't buy or earn our way in. No, our citizenship in the gospel, our membership in the heavenly kingdom of God through Jesus Christ, only comes to us as a gift of God's grace. And we see this especially in verse 29, where Paul says, For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ to believe in Him. Now the word here, granted, means to to give freely and graciously as one would give a gift. You're granting a gift. It isn't earned, it's not purchased, and it's not inherited. And so the honor of believing in Christ, that is, even faith itself, is a gift of God. God. And of course we know this is the same as what Paul expresses in Ephesians 2 verse 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So faith, faith itself is a gift of God. And thus citizenship in the gospel kingdom is a gift God graciously bestows upon us. Now, this graciously given citizenship becomes our chief position and identity. right? Surpassing even the citizenship that we may possess from an earthly kingdom or nation. Right? Being a citizen of the United States may mean something if you're going to cross the border. But it means nothing when we pass over from this life into eternity. Now this isn't to say that our earthly citizenship is is unimportant, or that we can't have a certain amount of of civic pride. Paul certainly wasn't condemning the Philippian believers for being Roman citizens. No, in fact, Paul himself had the privilege of Roman citizenship, and he used that uh, on many occasions to further the, the advance of the gospel. He used the advantages of Roman citizenship to further the gospel. And so his point here is that the Philippian believers' position before God, right, as citizens of His heavenly kingdom, as partakers in the gospel, that this is what must be the prevailing identity in their lives. They're they're Christians first and foremost. Their identity as Philippians and Roman citizens is much more further down the line. And so the challenge here is that we would also then live as citizens first and foremost, not of Rome, not of the United States, not because of where we were born or the status of our parents or through our own efforts and works, but that we must live as citizens to be the citizens of the gospel, having received this position by God's abounding grace and mercy That's our f- chief identity is our citizenship in the gospel. And so as Paul charges here, we're to have live as citizens in a manner that is worthy of such a great gift. Now, what is a worthy manner? Well, to live as citizens of the gospel in a worthy manner means that we must then strive to live in harmony with the gospel itself. That is with an attitude of humility and gratitude. We should be greatly humbled by the fact that God bestowed upon us such a wonderful gift. And this, even when we didn't deserve it. And it wasn't because we were the best, the brightest, or the most gifted and talented that God gave us this gift. No, if that was the case, then we would certainly have something to boast about. But God granted us the gift of faith That we might believe in His Son, Jesus. And that we might become partakers in the citizenship of the Gospel. He gave us this when we were His hostile enemies. This is what Paul asserts in Romans 5. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so as we seek to live our lives, even now, we should always keep this humble attitude before us. And Paul will further address this in, in chapter 2. But we must also live in a way that demonstrates our clear gratitude to God for what He has done for us. If we're condemned to eternal judgment, and yet God graciously called us out and made us citizens of His heavenly kingdom, well then certainly we should be thankful We should be thankful and we should then delight ourselves in living our lives for God's glory. Consider this. God sent His only begotten Son to suffer and die for your sins. The sins that you commit openly and the sins that you commit in secret. The punishment for your sins was nailed to the cross with Christ. And so as you evaluate the many sins of your life, and you can go back and look at your past, you can look at your present life, and you can even think about the the future, as you evaluate all those sins, weighing heavily upon our Savior on the cross, well then you should live in a way that regards that great gift as no little thing. We live in a worthy manner as citizens when we live with all all humility and out of great gratitude to God for what He has done for us through Christ. Now, if humility and gratitude are to be our attitudes as citizens, how specifically and practically are we to live as citizens of the gospel in our day-to-day living. Well, first, as we see in the second part of verse 27, Paul wants to, to hear that these citizen believers are standing fast. Standing fast in their faith and in the truth of the gospel. Standing fast refers to holding firm, to staying rooted and, and not compromising. Hold the battle line. right, and don't, don't be budged or moved. We live as citizens of the gospel when we stand fast in the truth of the gospel. When Paul first visited Philippi and proclaimed the gospel to them, he, he laid, laid down for them a sure, and certain, a sure and certain foundation upon which their faith and their lives were to be built. And that foundation has to do with the facts of the gospel. The good news about Jesus Christ. That He was the only begotten Son of God. And that He came to save His people from their sins. And that this salvation He truly accomplished when He gave Himself as a once for all perfect sacrifice for His sins as He died on the cross. And then He secured the victory over sin and death. When He rose again from the dead on the third day. And he did all this so that forgiveness might be granted to sinners. And peace and reconciliation between God and man might be achieved. Those are the basic facts of the gospel. And that's the foundation of our faith. Believing in these gospel truths was the foundation and the foundation of of our heavenly citizenship. And that's what Paul has, has given to these Philippian believers. And upon this foundation, they need to stand firmly. So as not to be moved off onto something that is less secure or certain. Many assaults on this truth will come upon them. False teachers and false prophets will come and and seek to lead them astray. But they must, Paul is saying, you must stand fast in the gospel truth that was first delivered to you. Because that alone... Is the sure foundation. In fact, Paul in Galatians goes one step further, in asserting this great truth when he tells the Galatian believers, uh, Galatians one verse eight. He says, "But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you, than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed." Paul is saying, look, even if we come back and and we say something different than what we first shared, well then don't believe us. Go back to the standard that we first gave you. The life-changing standard, the life-changing gospel which we gave you, that transformed you from from, uh, dead sinners into new uh, creations. And use that standard... To measure everything else that you may hear, whether it's from us or from something else, or even if it's from an angel. Stand fast and do not be moved. Brothers and sisters, such a calling couldn't be more appropriate in our own day. We know there are many false prophets and false teachers, false gospels and false revelations and false teachings that are out there. How do we know the difference? How do we discern the truth from error? We must stand firm in the truth of the gospel that God has revealed to us in His Word, the Bible. The Bible is our standard by which we must compare every other teaching. And if we find if we come across a teaching, if it contradicts, distorts, undermines, adds to, or takes away from the truth of God's word, then we need to cast it off and we need to run away from it as far as we can. <coughs> And even if it comes from this very pulpit, every teaching must be held to the perfect standard of God's Word. And if there's something amiss, then run and get out. We must be careful not to compromise or give way to error, lest it weaken our whole footing and we just collapse in disarray. We must be on guard. We must stand fast, as Paul says here. Well, the second part of this calling as citizens is being united together. Paul continues, stand fast in in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And so standing fast will be to no avail, right? If we, if we do all we can personally to stand fast, well, if you're the only one standing and your fellow soldiers, your fellow citizens in the kingdom are all doing their own thing, well, then the individual will quickly be overcome and overrun. There's truly strength in numbers. We can't stand alone. I mean, we may have to until we can find others who are firmly standing. But it's not good to stand alone. We become very vulnerable. And so Paul urges here that they must stand together, even united together as one person, as one body in Christ. And this unity is emphasized here not only in Paul's uh, repeated use of the word one, but, but also in the terms that he associates with that word. In one spirit, with one mind, or literally With one soul. Now, some take the mention of spirit here as a reference to the Holy Spirit, and certainly it's true that they ought to stand firm in the one Holy Spirit of God. In fact, if it weren't for the work of the Holy Spirit, then they wouldn't be standing at all. But it seems as though the point Paul is making here is emphasizing rather not the the Holy Spirit, but the unity. Right? One spirit, one soul, meaning the unity of one person. Right? That is, they are to be so unified that they're regarded as one person. Well, this is the same that Paul stresses in, in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12, where he speaks of the unity of believers in terms of the body of Christ. Right, One person, Christ Jesus, and we're part of, our, of that body. Each individual member is gifted uniquely by the Spirit of God. The body is made up of many parts, many members. Yet they don't function by themselves or merely for themselves. All those parts are to be interdependent upon all the other members. Just as the different parts of the body need all the other parts to properly move and function. And each individual part, doing their part to properly, uh, doing their part, uh, using their gifts for the blessing and the benefit of others. So that they might especially stand together on the truth of the gospel. Supporting one another, encouraging one another, and helping one another. Christ hasn't called just one person. He hasn't just called one individual he hasn't come to save just one person. He's called many persons to be one people, to be one nation, to be one church, one body. Standing firmly and united together. And so there are to be no lone ranger Christians. And you meet these kind of people all the time. They, they don't have time for the church. Well, I'm a Christian, but I don't, I don't mess with church. Well, they're in error. And they're in danger of dying being separated from the vine. So they're no Lone Ranger Christians. No one's to be out there on their own by themselves. They must be united to the larger body. A toe. A toe can't stand alone. Right? A toe without the rest of the, the toes, without the foot, without the leg, uh, muscles without the back and the spine, the arms, the hands, the head, of the brain. A toe can't stand on its own. We must be one body, united together in Christ Jesus, standing firm in the gospel of Christ. But this isn't just so that we can take a stand defensively, standing fast, but also so that we can also then push forward, as Christ calls us to do, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Right? This is our calling as the church, that we must stand firmly together on the truth of the gospel. Right? We must defend it at all costs, not wavering at all. But we must also be diligent to press the attack. To gain more ground for the kingdom of God, so that the gospel goes forth, so that the body grows, so that new citizens can come in and, <clears throat> in great abundance, all to the glory of God. Now too often the church finds itself doing only one to the exclusion of the other. Right? Some unite together and they stand firmly on the truth and, and they defend that truth with firm conviction. And that's good and right. But the problem is, they're very insulated. And they never press the attack. Which means they never go out and share the gospel. They never seek to gain new citizens to replenish the ranks. And eventually their numbers dwindle down and down until there's nothing left. But then on the other extreme, you have others that that press on ahead, united together, and they're very active, and there's a a great assault upon the darkness of this age. But they do so without guarding the foundation upon which they stand. And so what happens then to that foundation is it gets watered down, it becomes unstable, and eventually they're left as this large group, a large army of believers, but they're standing in nothing of substance. Because the truth has been so watered down. But the key to the battle, friends, the battle plan that Christ has given us, is that as citizens of the gospel, we're called to do both. We must stand firmly on the truth of the gospel and guard and protect it with everything that we have. But we must also be challenged to press the attack and strive to gain more ground for the glory of the king and his kingdom. We must do both. Paul is here again using military language as the striving is, is what's often done in battle. And this is certainly appropriate because there certainly are challenges that we must face in this endeavor to stand firm and, and to strive together for the faith of the gospel. And the first of these challenges Paul mentions in verse 28 and 28 In no way be terrified by your adversaries. So he's telling them there's going to be adversaries. There's going to be those opposed to how we try to live, those who will be offended by the gospel truth that we stand upon, those who will seek to pull us away and to turn us aside, who will seek to silence us, and even who may want to seek to wipe us off the face of the earth. These are the adversaries that we can expect. Now this is the first mention Paul makes of adversaries in Philippi. And in chapter 3, he's actually going to warn of these adversaries using such graphic terms to show that they're, they're very dangerous and they, they shouldn't be taken lightly. Now, we don't know specifically of whom Paul is referring. They may be Jewish opponents, like Judaizers, who sought to burden Christians with the rituals of the Old Testament law. Or they may be Roman or pagan opponents, like the ones Paul had met with before in Philippi. It's likely one of the one of these groups, or maybe even both, who are opposing the Philippine believers at this time, and yet Paul's counsel and advice here is, look, don't be terrified by them. that is don't don't be so afraid and shocked and startled by their assaults that you lose sight of your purpose and position and calling in Christ, being terrified or alarmed." by these adversaries, could have severe consequences. And again, here the term is, is another military term, a term for tar- terrified or startled. And it's meant to, to describe, it was meant to describe the sudden start of the horse in battle. Right? So you can imagine the, the, the battle line, you have the cavalry there, and you, all the horses are all lined up, and the soldiers are on the horses, and they're all geared up, and they're ready to enter a battle. Well, then all of a sudden, there's something spooks one of the horses, and he gets startled. And he jumps up. And causes a stir and his rider falls off. And the rider becomes in danger, not only in danger of being trampled, but then also all the other horses begin to stir around him. And suddenly, this united front is broken because this one horse was startled or terrified by something. And so Paul's warning in here is, don't be that way. Don't be afraid. Because if it, you're afraid, if you're terrified of the adversaries that you may face, it's going to affect you and it's going to affect the other believers around you adversely. And it's going to disrupt that united front that we're called to, to have. Yes, the adversaries will come. Paul saying, look, you need to be ready and prepared for them. But don't be afraid of them. Remain standing fast and united together. Remain standing in the truth of the gospel. Remain united as one body. For by keeping their united front and advancing together, in verse 28, will be a proof or a sign to these opponents of their own coming destruction. The more that they oppose the believers, and the more that the believers are there uh, making a a firm, uh, united uh, stand... They realize that they can't gain a foothold. That they can't advance and they can't prevail. Friends, this is what Christ has promised the church. That the gates of hell will not prevail against this church. The united resistance the adversaries meet comes as a sign to these adversaries of their futile efforts. And the fact that they will be the ones who will ultimately be destroyed. Because they can't win against Christ and His church. Not if that church remains firmly rooted in the gospel and is firmly united together. But this same sign, the sign of perdition for these adversaries, though an omen of sorts for the adversaries, will be a sign of encouragement to the people of God even an affirmation of their salvation and faith, that God will surely keep and preserve His people. That He's going to guard and protect the citizens of His holy kingdom. He won't keep them from being assaulted, tested, and tempted. That's going to come. Those attacks will come. But He will preserve them from being overcome and destroyed. He will give them ultimate Victory, And friends, we need to keep this in mind. Right? That we need to be together and united and we need to be standing. We need not to be afraid of of these adversaries and these assaults that come. And that we have one another to build up and encourage us as we stand rooted in the gospel of Christ. And that by opposing these adversaries, uh, by opposing false teaching and false doctrine, false teachers, by opposing these things, that we can be strengthened and encouraged and given assurance of our own faith and salvation because of the assured victory Christ our Savior has promised us. Well, this then leads to the second challenge to be faced by citizens of the gospel. And this comes in Verse 29 to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him but also to suffer for his sake now no one likes to suffer it's not pleasant it's not easy to endure and certainly we acknowledge that suffering is a part of the curse of the fall and the effect of just simply living in a fallen and sinful world and despite what what false health and wealth teachers proclaim we know that the people of God are not exempt from suffering. And our own lives certainly may bear that out. As long as we live in this world and remain in the flesh, we will endure suffering. And as believers, as citizens of the gospel, we then shouldn't be surprised or startled or terrified by suffering when it rears its ugly head in our lives. But this general suffering because of the effects of sin in the world isn't what Paul is talking about here. It's important. (coughs) Note note carefully what he says here. For to you it has been granted, not only to believe, but also to suffer for his sake. Remember the word granted? Granted. granted graciously as if a gift is being graciously given? And it sounds great that to believe in Christ is given to us by a, a wonderful, gracious gift by God. That's awesome. But friends, what about suffering? What about suffering for His sake? Do you humbly and greatly, uh, graciously receive that gift Gift. Indeed, we should. Because when we suffer for the cause of Christ and the gospel, it truly is a gift that we should humbly and gratefully receive. And this is exactly how the apostles received it in Acts 5, verse 41, after being flogged by the Jewish council, they departed from the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy. To suffer shame for his name, they didn't cry and, and mope and be overwhelmed with self-pity, and, woe is me, and why is all this happening to me? No, they rejoiced that they had this privilege and honor to suffer shame for the cause and the name of Christ. Now, how could they rejoice? at the suffering they endured for the cause of Christ and the gospel. How could Paul be urging the Philippians to do the same? How could we be challenged to do the same? Well, first we note that Paul isn't asking them to do anything that he himself hasn't already endured. Verse 30, he says, Having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. Not only did they witness what Paul suffered while he was there in their midst in Philippi. Remember he was unjustly beaten and imprisoned. But even now, they hear of his further suffering for Christ as he's in a Roman prison in Rome. Again, imprisoned unjustly. And so Paul is not saying, well you do this, I don't have to worry about it. No, he's... Living it. And they're living it. And he's encouraging them. Now, secondly, we should remember <clears throat> that when we suffer for the cause of Christ and the gospel, we're receiving exactly what Jesus himself told us we would receive. And that this suffering has a purpose. And one of those purposes is that it's a witness to others. <coughs> Of the glory of the gospel. Jesus says this in Mark 13. But watch out for yourselves. For they will deliver you up to councils. And you will be beaten in the synagogues. So there's a lot of suffering right there. You will be brought before rulers and kings for my sake. For a testimony to them. Paul went through this. Beaten and flogged and brought and uh, imprisoned and brought to trial. <coughs> suffering greatly for the cause of Christ. And yet it was an opportunity for the gospel to go forth as he proclaimed that gospel. And, and I think it was uh, uh, King Agrippa said, you know, Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. And that's the example set for us. As others see our suffering and the suffering that we endure in our lives, and they look upon us and they see how are you able to to get through this with a you know just being kind of cheerful and content? Well, it's because of, of the hope that is in us, and we give that reason for the hope that is in us. And so, it's our suffering can be a testimony to others of the glory of the gospel. Well, thirdly, such suffering we know will also be greatly rewarded by Christ at His return. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, and what's interesting here is that, you know, the, the Beatitudes, right? Blessed are the, the meek, blessed uh, uh, the poor, and those uh, uh, poor in spirit, right? The Beatitudes, and everybody loves the Beatitudes, even uh, unbelievers, oh, the Beatitudes are wonderful. Well, here's one of the Beatitudes. This is the final Beatitude that's always passed over. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for a greater reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you, and of course they ultimately would persecute Christ as that great final prophet. And so there's a reward. Not a reward in this life, but an eternal heavenly reward that we enjoy in the glorious presence of our Savior forever and ever. And finally, when we suffer for the name of Christ in the gospel, it actually causes us to draw nearer to Christ so that we can identify more closely with Him who endured such great injustice at the hands of wicked men. And of course, we remember that all the suffering that Christ endured. He endured for us because of our sin. And so we identify with Christ, who identified with us. In our suffering for His name, we identify with Him. And friends, this is the gift that we're granted. And that ultimately, as a result of all this, that we become more like Christ. We become more like He who suffered and endured even the painful and shameful death of the cross that we might not only be citizens of His heavenly kingdom but that we might also then be His beloved brothers and sisters that we might be children of the living God. Brothers and sisters, this is how we must live. As citizens of the gospel. Standing fast. On the solid foundation of the gospel. Striving together for the forward advance of the gospel. So that even though we may be challenged by adversaries. And suffering for the cause of Christ and the gospel. So that he will truly be glorified in us and through us. And then ultimately we will become more like Him. Beloved of God, truly may the Spirit of God grant to you such faith and grace and strength to accomplish these things, to live as citizens of the Gospel, all to the glory of God alone. Let's pray. Oh, gracious God and heavenly Father, we rejoice and give thanks to you for the challenge to us to live as citizens of the gospel. It's not an easy calling. And yet we're reminded, first of what Christ has already endured for us. That there's nothing laid out here that Christ has not already endured. Not because of His own sins and faults, but because of our sin. And so we praise You and thank You, Lord, that He endured that so that we might be called citizens of Your kingdom. But we also acknowledge that we can only be faithful citizens with Your Spirit at work in our hearts and our lives. We can only stand firm in the truth of the Gospel if You are with us as we feed upon Your Word and Your Spirit strengthens us and encourages us and builds us up each and every day. That as the Spirit of Christ continues to work in a body of believers, even this body of believers, drawing us all closer together as one body, that we would truly be like-minded and seeking to build up and encourage one another and strengthen one another. This is only possible because of your spirit at work here. And we do pray, Lord, that we would stand firm and fast, that you would keep us true and faithful to your gospel. We know there are many false teachings even encroaching upon faithful reformed churches. We pray that you would help us to stand fast and stand firm. Against those assaults. But that we would also be faithful to. To go on the offense. And to be faithful in proclaiming the gospel to those around us. To those who truly are in need of it. And that you would lead us to those. That they might come to know of your salvation in Christ. And all that you have done for us through him. Father we pray that you would. In all these things bring glory to your holy name. We pray that you would by your spirit impress these truths upon each of our own hearts. Equipping us, challenging us to live as faithful citizens in the the kingdom of God and in the gospel of Christ. We pray all these things in the name of Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.